but they could do it in the radio, you know, because his his best friend was a hooker in a bar. <laughs> Kitty. It's December 28th, 2022. This is Rare Encounter, encounter number 128. And talking to you from the past, I'm Abel Kirby. And Mark Christopher. Here's a special guest. We've got Mark Christopher in the studio, the special uh, studio that we've transported from my home to my work, so we can interview Mark Christopher. Greetings, everyone. I come from the before time in the analog world, and I am quite impressed by this uh, little toy equipment that does all the cool stuff that a giant Gates yard console used to do back in the day. It's uh, very nifty. It's uh, compact. You fit it in one box. Just one box is all it takes to to carry it anywhere in the country. So I do like that. I'm a fan of the Rodecaster Pro, um, though it has some shortcomings. <laughs> we'll take uh, we'll take a closer look at that maybe in the next year and see what we can do about getting a different board out here. But it just doesn't seem right. You know, you should have to clean the audio potentiometers and all that stuff. The audio should be on the potentiometers. You clean out all like the the ashes and tobacco spit and stuff. No, you know what you do? no, 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 no. Back in the radio days, we had a. Uh, Gates console with the linear pots and the first on-air potentiometers would always corrode out very quickly, like in the first couple of weeks. And I showed up at the station one night and I figured out why that was happening. They were cutting lines up on the console and the, the uh, spillage was getting into the potentiometers and corroding them. Mm. And I think they there was a company memo shortly after that. Don't do cocaine on the audio console. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, things are. I've, I've now I've heard a lot of stories from Mark over the last. How long have we been working together? A year and a it half. It hasn't been that long. About a year. Yeah, about a year. A little more than a year. Mm-hmm. I think I showed up October uh, October last year. But all the old radio stories and stories from the satellite television days. There, and, there's a saying I've heard said around here. You know, uh, if there's uh, history to be uh, to be known about Mark uh, about uh, radio, I should say that Mark is the one to tell it. Uh, he has some. Great background in what was it? TVRO and Satcom and TV. TVRO was the big thing, and um, it's really interesting because the um, uh, the current career I am in it was totally by chance because the owner of the company, the former owner of the company we work for now, was a TVRO customer, mm. and we were talking about antennas, and he said, "Why don't you come down to my company tomorrow? I might have somewhere for you." And here I am, and um, you know we have. PhDs and people that have very carefully orchestrated careers here. And they asked me how I planned my career. And I said, my career was totally by chance, <laughs> totally by chance. I, uh, it's some, some of the best, some of the best kind of things that happen are by chance. Uh, yeah, yes, that's me. true. That's true. It's a lot of uh, flying by the seat of my pants and mine as, uh, as some of our listeners know. <laughs> uh, just to take a step back, uh, you said TVRO. I'm not sure everyone mm-hmm. knows that acronym. Oh, um, back before direct broadcast satellite um you had a big ugly dish sometimes they were called buds for that reason big ugly dish and um the some of you may remember in the rural areas you saw a big 10 foot uh, fiberglass or mesh dish and that was for watching television um however you know that that industry sort of sprung up uh motivated by piracy i guess you would say (laughs) well they they were it, it was decided that Communication satellites were the way to go in the 1970s because Ma Bell, um, with the terrestrial C-band relay network, was raping everybody 
<laughs> on the rates because they could. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody said, well, you know what? We're getting so raped by Ma Bell. Let's build some comm satellites and put them in geosynchronous orbit. And there was different um, experiments with that in the late 60s with Syncom, which uh, some of the very old listeners might remember the grainy video coming back from Vietnam um, that uh, Walter Cronkite would always say was uplinked in Japan. Hmm. Um, and then they figured out um, terrestrial C-band, which was never intended. I mean, um, satellite C-band, which was never intended for the consumer. But somebody discovered that you could get HBO and free movies. And then all of a sudden, a, a really specialized commercial you know, industry became, um, how would you say, simplified and re-engineered for the consumer. Uh, it, it's amazing. I never saw anything in anything, uh, any other industry uh, evolve so quickly. I mean, amplifiers for a C-band system in 1975 were thousands of dollars. And then all of a sudden, all these companies got on the bandwagon to make receivers so you could get free movies. And in a few years, they were $100. Yeah, no, he's saying free movies, but what he means yeah. is free porn. Yeah, and oh yeah, that's right. And then early on, there was American Triple X, and that was another one that motivated everybody. You could get free porn, you know, and I forget that was on... That was back in the West Star days. That goes back a long ways. West Star 1 and West Star 2 and SATCOM 1, I think it was, the RCA bird. Okay. And somewhere in the middle, let's see, there was a Intel SAT came up. And I know I, – I don't know if you're familiar with this, but some of the stuff that I was working on was all um, really – thrust forward in its technology by aside from from the porn in the uh, the <laughs> consumer markets uh by the UK postal service had a, spent a lot of money on figuring out how to do um satellite communications uh so there's a lot of weird aspects to it like you, when i first found that out i thought it was a typo or a misunderstanding but though it was the postal service in the UK that was spending a lot of money on international communications um and just to get back to tv for a moment in the you mentioned the terrestrial microwave link the this was a c band terrestrial link that would you could broadcast tv over yeah the um the in the 50s the um according to what i've read the um television networks were they didn't have videotape yet before 57 i think when ampex came out with the um quadruplex system so they would record film kinescope which is essentially a film camera running at uh, 30 frames per second synchronized to the television synchronization pulse and they would expose one frame for one picture frame so you essentially had a device with a special little crt and a camera uh, a film chain and that's how they would record it so naturally you have losses because it's essentially like putting a microphone up to a speaker and recording audio. That's essentially what it was. And they would develop, they would um, record film kinescope and then ship it to the West Coast. And then it was rebroadcast for tape, de- film delay, if you will. Right. In the 50s. And they were eating up so much film stock, it was ridiculous. So evidently, you know, AT&T figured out a way um, to put a uh, communications tower every 15 or so miles and then relay C-band video on, you know, uh, across the nation. And um, it, it was, it was, it seems clunky and it by today's standards, but actually it, it worked quite well, but of course it was extremely expensive and it was subsidized uh, by the high long distance costs that everyone paid back in the day. And um, 
let me think. And then what was the other weird thing about that? The audio was not sent with the video. The audio came a completely separate route over the old coaxial phone lines. And so that's why the television audio back in the day sounded absolutely abhorrent. It was terrible. <laughs> you know, bandwidth limited and everything. But back, that was the only way to do it. Uh, no, you, you either had to have someone carry these film canisters yes. across the country and the wireless revolution then began. Yeah, uh, pretty much. Mainly because it got cheaper. Than yeah. The, the glorified Pony Express, I think. Oh, yeah. F- shuttling um, kinescopes across the country. <laughs> now, there's a couple other things that we, we've touched on before just in our, our own conversations and radio – it's another one, uh, oh, like television, terrestrial like, radio, like terrestrial radio before, before the internet, everyone talks about, you know, invasive technologies, boy, the internet and radio, boy, oh boy, you know, before the internet took over, if you had a radio station and maybe there were say 10 or 15 of them in a market, you know, that's a, you had a pretty good percentage of the people listening, you know, say everything was evil. You had one fifteenth of the entire audience in a given city. So if you were a rock station, Whenever the bands came to town, they came to your station. So you got to meet people and it was really cool. And like I always, always said, it didn't matter if you were the guy sweeping the floor. If you brought your girlfriend up to the radio studio, you got laid, period. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it was, but oh, wow, the studio, you know. Well, we had uh, a couple radio stations I liked early in the, let's see, let's actually call it the mid-90s, early 2000s in the Boston radio market that was just fantastic. And you had to listen to it uh, because there was nothing else to do. If you were at work and you're putting screws into an assembly or I was doing microwave filters, I was actually a filter assembler is one of my first jobs doing filters and diplexers. Oh, boy. Oddly enough for terrestrial microwave links. And tedious. It was tedious, you know, you put the screws in the hole. And so you had to have some kind of music, but so you bring in some CDs, but then once you listen to them all five or six times, you get bored. We got through the mini discs and <laughs> this was right before we found out about Pandora. You had to have the radio on all the time. And so we had a couple uh, stations, WAAF was good, WBCN Boston, that's a famous one. Um, and they would have these just awesome programs where they'd have good music playing. They had funny people, good personalities on the air. People are calling in and it's not like the loser who can't do anything but call. It's like funny people are calling in. (laughs) It was a great program. And what I was going to, what I'm trying to get to is the fact that that's, you were expressing the audience as a percentage. And though I think the shares, I don't know how much that's changed. What's the share of your radio station in a radio market? It's, the market has gotten so much smaller because you're not just competing against other radio stations. You're competing against people who can play on Facebook on their phone. Because if you didn't have a phone with Facebook on it, then you'd be bored enough to listen to the radio. (laughs) Well, I mean, a radio station now, um, if you were, you know, if it was 1975, you know, and you wanted portable music, it was a radio. I mean, there were portable eight track players and portable cassette players, you know, and and they worked, but if you wanted it to play all day, you weren't going to do it with a portable eight track player because the motor ate up the batteries. It was a radio. So you had, you know, high quality, you know, content because the, the money, there was only so there was a lot of money and it was spread up a, 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 say amount about 15 stations in a given market. So they had a large income. Mm. You know, there were things like the music director, the guy, the guy had a job, the music director that paid for a family 
And all he did was deal with the playlist. That's all the music director did. All right. As you said, you get stoned and pick the hits. Yeah. Get stoned and pick the hits. Yep. And uh, that, that's amazing to me, a job like that where, you know, you could go to a radio station and get a job being the music director and, you know, and have a good paying job. You know, if you were a good, if you were good and you, that station made money because they liked what you were playing, you know, it was it's just unheard of today, a music yeah. director. Even, you know? even bigger than that, um, they had, if, if I'm recalling your, some previous stories, they had some backup orchestras in case they actually went off on the air and make this, I think it was oh, a long that time was, ago. That was in the was, 40s. Yeah, the... Um, Apparently in the old days, um, the big draw for radio, now we're talking network radio of the 40s. One of the big things was that it was live. And they took a lot of stock in the fact that what you were hearing was a live presentation happening right now. So there were bands on recordings, plus the fact that what they were playing back was a transcription disc recording, and they weren't necessarily the most reliable things. So... There was a band on it, and so you had a guy in a room with a piano, and he was there pretty much all the time, and there were three lights, green, yellow, and red. And green meant, you know, sit there, smoke a cigarette, talk trash to secretary, mm-hmm. you know, that you did in the 40s. And then yellow meant, uh-oh, you know, something's happening, you know, 10 seconds, and then red meant you were on the air, and the guy would start playing piano, and that was the fill guy, you know, the fill music guy. And And that's another one you think about, you know, it's like no tape, no recording. You had a guy that you were paying to be there, a piano guy, not just some Gomer guy that knows how to play piano pretty good. Mm-hmm. And he sat there and that was his job. Or the fact that when you hear music playing, it's actually an orchestra in a, you know, in a room. Now imagine that you got 50, a 50 piece orchestra. Who's got to take a dump? Who's got a pee? Whose ass is sore? <laughs> you know, and you got a guy there sitting there managing all these people and you got to be ready when the director, you know, waves his finger in the air, you're on the air, let's go, you know, yep. and live and no screw ups, you know, because it's live. Now I'm fascinated by some videos of that were taken of the insides of these studios when uh, a radio play was being recorded because you see the actors standing up in front of their microphones and they're performing their parts. And then there's the practical sound effects guys are doing the the footfalls and they're doing the doors opening and slamming and the water boy, the whistle from the water boiling or the, or the piece of glass over the, over the metal tub that you'd smash with a hammer. Uh, (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, and make those sounds pretty, it's pretty amazing, you know, because they didn't have once again, they had, there were some recordings, like they had these big consoles that would roll around with speakers and they would play sound effects off of a record, like say a, a car engine running, you know, you're supposed to be driving in a car and the um, turntable had two tone arms. So as the track was ending, you know, you drop the second tone arm at the beginning of the track of the motor sound and then fade it over. So it didn't end, you know, and then that just played over speakers in the studio, not directly into the console. So it sounded more realistic. And so the Lone Ranger can get into his old Oldsmobile and drive away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, I just let you see that the sound of rain is like be, dry beans being poured onto a screen, yeah. you know, or something like that. You know, what, what I think is fascinating about it is the queuing involved, where you have to have someone who's really in charge, making sure that things happen when they happen. And uh, we've had some other folks on the show. Uh, uh, we have a fella, a uh, boobery, who does some. Uh, lighting and he's he goes off on his show behind the schemes about uh just getting how many cues can you get in a show how many can he do i think he's in the chat right now which is why i'm giving him a good shout out because he's actually listening but (laughs) for our pre-recorded show uh but the uh just the 
the technical uh, and, and the training and the rehearsal that has to go into hitting all those cues at the right time and getting the right thing to play out at the right moment. Well, you know, sound good. You know, part of that was too, it was the 1940s. And if you weren't good enough, your ass was out on the street. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There was no second chance or this or that. Hey, now get the hell out of here. You know, we got three other people waiting for your job. So you better not screw it up. You know, there was that too, you know, and uh, those radio jobs were quite well paid. So people didn't want to lose them, mm-hmm. you know, um, it just, you know, once again, a whole different, a whole different, um, you know, a whole different world. You know, you think about like changes in media, you know, like the big changes in media. The first big one was the printing press, right? You know, we went from, yeah, we went from, we went from the traveling troubadours telling vocal stories and history to printed media, big change. Well, what's the next big change in printed media? It was radio because, you know, you think about Ma and Pa Kettle in Kansas in 1937 and they were just relying on a newspaper, you know, maybe a couple of newspapers in town. Then they went and bought a Zenith console radio for their house that had shortwave on it. And now you can listen to Hitler directly from Germany, <laughs> you know, from going from print media to listening to Hitler, you know, and I just keep thinking what, you know, the old farmers thought when they first heard this, you know, they were probably like, you know, holy shit, what is this crazy shit going on in Europe? You know, they it really had to be, I would think kind of shocking. And I consider television just a little, a slight extension of radio because that's what it was. I mean, when you look at network radio in the forties and you look at network television in the eighties, it's exactly the same. It's structured the same, the commercials, the, the laugh tracks. It's, it's very similar. The big change was the internet, you know, now where, you know, you've disrupted all that stuff and now everybody has a voice and, you know, and we have all that noise that you hear so commonly today. A lot of noise, not a lot of signal sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Now Twitter seems to be, this is something I've been keeping an eye on is this Elon Musk and Twitter business. I have to say it's been entertaining. It got me interested in Twitter. I've not been interested in Twitter in a very long time. And, but I also have to say it's growing pretty old because there's only so many times that the Twitter files can point out that Twitter is a completely corrupt company that's just <laughs> shilling against uh, people who just want to I mean, tell the truth. I wish they'd run Twitter. Well. I wish they run Twitter just like the old days of shortwave radio. If you can afford time on a shortwave transmitter or you could build a shortwave station, you could put your voice on the air and it didn't matter who it was. I mean, we used to hear some of the craziest stuff. Well, there's some... There's some stuff out there uh, that called Activity Pub is a protocol. There's some implementations that use that as Pleroma and Mastodon, and it's a uh, open source way of constructing a social network that spans different networks. Uh, different, so you could have your own server where you can publish your own, say, status update if you're on a Facebook t- style. If you want to think about it like that, it's, most of them seem more like Twitter clones than that, but. You don't need to go through Twitter. You can have a feed. You can follow people on other servers and get their feed in your timeline and talk back and forth uh, more or less without any hassle. Um, it's not any harder to follow someone on a, on an outside server, external server, than someone on the inside. And there's some great uh, progress, I would say, being made in building decentralized systems because if you don't like what someone, say if Elon Musk – uh, his equivalent in the Fediverse did uh, something you didn't like. You don't have to connect to a server. You don't have to follow anyone on a server. You can block the whole thing. You can backlist it, whatever, and, and move on with your life. But if you wanted to have your own, uh, say you wanted your own 
server where you want to talk about your car club or your ham radio or your podcasting stuff. There's a couple of them out there that do just podcasting technology, which are int- it's interesting to me. Uh, you can spin up your own server. You can have people on it. You can administrate, you know, give out credentials. It's an open registration or you, you're making accounts for people. You can, you can do a lot yourself that previously you would have had to rely on some tech company to do like yeah, Facebook decentralized is really the only way. I mean, I know it sounds, it sounds crude, but the only way to do it is everything has to be open for everybody. You know what I mean? Everybody can say it, you know, everyone can say everything with no moderation. And, and then the, the listener filters it out. Yeah. That's how you should do it. But evidently that's not how we want to do it anymore. But well, with the collapse of the uh, terrestrial radio market, yeah. I'm, I really want to see some changes in how licenses – if I want to open my own FM station, maybe it's just a transmitter in my house. I want to be able to get a license for that without all the hassle and the overhead well, you have now. They still think that those licenses are worth $87 million <laughs> and they're ridiculous. not. They're, I think it was in Columbus. The, there was a license there, – there was a, in Columbus, Ohio, there was a certain rock station that was popular and the license – was valued at something like $80 million. And that's just the license without any equipment, without a transmitter, without a tower, nothing. And um, yeah, I think it maybe, you know, demanded that money 40 years ago, but now I don't know, you know, I mean, it's, it's just one of a million other things that you could get on your phone. You could listen to the local FM or you could tune in to Radio Caroline from Great Britain if you want, you know. I thought the way to renew interest in this, uh, in FM radio, uh, would I think you should just allow swearing on it. <laughs> I think it should just be allowed. Uh, this Here's your free speech radio station. I want to have my free speech radio station broadcast from my apartment, from my own transmitter, and I want to say whatever I want. I want to say socially objective, object, <laughs> objectionable things. Boy, I don't know. You know I want to swear. I want to have bad psychosexual ideas and broadcast it to the world. And And – you know, it's not not that I really want to do that, but I don't want to have to worry about what I say. And, and you know, listeners of Rare Encounter know that I don't <laughs> worry about what I say when I'm on the show. I say whatever I think is funny or whatever is going to get a laugh. I can't do that on the radio. Yeah. I don't think the rules have you caught know? up yet. You know, the rules are still written from the day when radio was it, you know, so they were trying to keep it straight for everybody, you know, music for the masses, if you will. Yeah, but children don't listen <clears throat> to radio. Boy, now children nope. don't listen to radio. I mean, children, I did, but I grew up in the seventies. Children watch YouTube videos <laughs> that are made by uh, Satanists, indoctrinating yeah. them into New World Order style programs. <laughs> yeah, they don't listen much. to FM radio. <laughs> well, you could tell. Obviously, you could tell that by what music is FM radio playing. <laughs> yeah, music, music <laughs> for people older than forty. 80s, 90s, and now. Music for people older than 40. Yes, exactly. Because that's who's listening. I mean, I listen to radio because I always listen to radio, you know. Um, And I keep listening for that good radio station. And actually, the best radio station I found is the little 50-watt community radio station that I could barely pick up. That's (laughs) And that's the only one that the community radio station here in town, one night I tuned in at 8 o'clock and it was nothing but 1980s video game music. That was the show. (laughs) And it was, I mean, you know, Dig Dug, Pac-Man, Galaga, uh, yeah. you know, all the uh, uh, Galaxian, Joust. I mean, all the sound effects. It's joust. Is that the one where you ride an ostrich around? Yes, Joust. Yes, yes. <laughs> I've yes. seen that game. Yes, yes, yes. I joust. saw it at a barcade. 
Yes, Joust was one of the, that was the one spent lots of time with in the late 80s. Boy, oh boy. Or or Quicks. So what, just one second. Joust, is that a multiplayer game? You try and joust each other? No, no, it was, it, it probably could be a two-player game, but uh, I seem to remember playing it by myself, you know, because you had to jump from one of the islands to the other and shoot the enemy and... And do a few other things. Um, the one I remember that was the multiplayer game was the the Dungeons and Dragons style game. It had a four position uh, console. Uh, what was that one called? Mm. You were you were a sorcerer, and you were um, you know you were shooting different things and throwing energy balls, and the the, the demons would come at you. And, God, what was that one called? Just throw an energy ball right there. Throwing an energy ball, yes. <laughs> Stay tuned now. I really like the processing. Stay tuned now. Oh, yeah? Stay tuned now for Are You Being Served on WOSU TV 34. This is Rare Encounter Radio. <laughs> now, I put I put a little more processing on yours. Uh, I, I don't <laughs> like the, the big bottom processor on mine. It uh, sounds a little too much. Yeah, and it, it's not. This, is, this actually works really nice. You know, tune in tonight for Barney Miller on WKZO TV Channel 3 Kalamazoo. Some of those old... Um, Barney Miller that <laughs> you're making me think of again, like the Lone Ranger and some of these old radio programs, the, the, who was it? Was it Alfred Hitchcock? No, it was George Orwell did the Campbell soup thing. What was it called? Oh, no, no, no. That was, um, that was Orson Welles. Orson Welles. After he, after he, um, had the war of the worlds broadcast, you know, his, his show, Orson Welles show was opposite Charlie McCarthy, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. And much like today, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. It was funny, but it was it was you know lowbrow comedy, you know, and that always is the most popular. And um, Orson Welles' show, which was opposite Charlie McCarthy, was dramatizations of classic American novels. That's what they would do. They would dramatize novels and mm. put it on the radio. So it had a really niche market, real esoteric. Um, you know, maybe. 90% of the people were listening to Charlie McCarthy and only a small percentage to Orson Welles. Well, anyway, he had his infamous War of the Worlds broadcast, and then all of a sudden they got a sponsor. Because I think uh, the Campbell's Soup people said, you know, if he could convince people that Martians were coming, he sure <laughs> as hell can sell Campbell's Soup. Uh, these days, the Campbell's Soup, if you look at the ingredients, you might wonder if it's from space also. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's something there. Yeah, it's all, it's all chicken now because that's the cheapest. Yeah, unfortunately. But oh yeah, Campbell, the Campbell Playhouse. You know, ah, that was it. Yeah, the Campbell Playhouse. This is Orson Welles. <laughs> no, I've I've listened to a couple of those. Uh, Mark, you gave me a backup, um, like a thumb drive of all these archival material, and some was transferred from tape. And I've actually played some on the stream, uh, maybe five or six months ago when I got it. Uh, played some of the Campbell's uh, Playhouse, and we also listened to. Uh, who's that mystery show about the insurance adjuster? Oh, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yeah, that one. That where where he good. goes through the he goes through his expense report at the end, and this is Johnny Dollar was like the late forties, and it's like a week in the hotel, eight dollars, you know, and <laughs> things like that, you know, and it's just it's amusing to listen to. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yeah, that was a that was a cool one. Um, and then of course, and then of course, one of the best the best radio shows ever was Gunsmoke with uh, Robert Conrad or no wait William Conrad William Conrad Cannon. If you remember Cannon from the early seventies TV show, um, but um, Gunsmoke was interesting because it was you know television was taking over. It was the late forties, early fifties. You know, everyone who had done radio shows had been doing it for 20 years. So it was very refined and everybody was familiar with their job. And this was sort of the last thing. And the first few seasons of Gunsmoke were unsponsored. 
So the scripts were really violent. <laughs> I mean, they're violent. You like, know, what are we talking? What kind of stuff would happen in an like, un, uh, uncensored episode of Gunsmoke? Oh, I mean, like you know, beating your wife and rape and prostitution. I mean, something that would never hit the television screen <laughs> in the 1950s, but they could do it in the radio. You know, because his his best friend was a hooker in a bar. <laughs> Kitty, she was a hooker, you know, and they always used to say, oh, she works late, <laughs> you know, 1950, oh, she works late, you know, what do you mean she works late? She's a hoe. I mean, wink, wink, wink. Yeah, wink, wink, nod, nod. The audio, wink, wink, nod, nod. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'd listen to it, and it was, you know, people would just get shot openly, you know, and they, what they were trying to do is it wasn't a kid's Western. They were trying to show how violent that the, the old West really was. You know, where someone could just get in an argument in a bar and just get shot, uh, much like today. Uh, <laughs> Depending on where you are. Yeah, yeah, much like Detroit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so just just fascinating. I, I don't know. You know, it, it it doesn't – some things play well today and some things don't. Obviously, when you're listening to an audio-only program, you know, you can only do so much. And um, the thing that I think modern audiences don't appreciate is when you're listening to a program like that, you have to listen to it. You got to turn off all the visuals. You got to sit there and pay attention to it because you miss things. Now, I've been driving a lot lately, so I've been really into some audiobooks. I'm um, partway through Moby Dick, which I never read as a kid, though my brother did. And uh, my my impression from this book is that there was no way I would have understood it as a child. As a kid, no. 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 It, you have to be old enough to, to kind of get it well, because I know the words. You don't understand all the words, but you didn't get the deeper <laughs> meanings of things until you're a little older. So I'm glad that I'm reading it now, <laughs> not as a teenager. <laughs> yeah. And But the, I'm, the service that I'm listening to it on is LibriVox. Have you ever heard of that one? I've heard of LibriVox. I don't like them as much. I feel that the American uh, f- the American Foundation for the Blind does the best for audiobooks because um, when you're listening to somebody's voice for 60 hours, if they have a lisp or a tiny little pronunciation gaffe, it drives you bananas. And, you know, if you talk like this, that's fine if you're selling Campbell's Soup. But when you're listening to somebody's voice for 80 hours, you know, you want it read dry just like this. And the ship went to, you know, and it just has to be done that way because it'll grate on your nerves. And apparently the since the um, Foundation for the Blind has been doing audiobooks since the 30s, they figured this out, mm. you know. So they have a style guide that works that they can train people to. And- Probably, I would assume, but it's hard to get those because obviously they're reserved because they're the copyrights are only written in such a way that only blind people are supposed to listen to them because it's it's done for free, I believe. The copy, you know, the the, the books are given to the uh, American Federation for the Bl- Foundation for the Blind, and uh, the copyrights are different, so they can't be sold, and you can't right, right. But you can find old records and old tapes around, you know. Uh, like I have the, um, I had to do a transfer. Uh, fella brought me the entire New Testament, King James Bible, r- read by Alexander Scorby. Um, but it was not the time compressed one. It was it was the original sixteen RPM discs, and he wanted them transferred to digital files, and I did that for him. And it was uh, really an educational experience, I'll tell you. <laughs> Some parts of the Bible are pretty violent. So, did you get saved or saved by the Bible, saved by the recording? Well, I don't know. You know, <laughs> yeah, I think a lot's been lost in translation. You so. know, because some of it, some of it makes sense, and some of it doesn't quite ring true. But you know, it's it's interesting though, to say the least. Uh, there's been some thoughts on. Uh, so we have like things like the Book of Enoch, which are of the same. Um, 
uh, it's another book that's not in the Bible, right? But it's it's kind of of the same sources. Is that so, the is that one of the new ones that was found? One, in I think the, it was a Dead Sea Scroll that was recovered. Found in the fifties or something. Yeah, like it was it? found in the fifties. Mm-hmm. So it has some. They, I think they went into a cave and they found these jars that were just full of scrolls. And they went through and they started reading them. And they said, "Oh, this is like a really, really old copy of some part of the Old Testament." And they would actually match up so they have little fragments that maybe have five or six words on it, but they can translate them and then search through uh, modern versions of the. Uh, modern versions of the text and find out, oh, no, this is actually a fragment of a passage from, you know, this book, this verse, Mm -hmm. this chapter. And and so I think Wikipedia has a good good table that has a list of all the fragments because every fragment, no matter how insignificant, has a number associated with it. (laughs) It has a code that tells you which expedition it was found on and uh, kind of which number it was. It has the translation. It tells you if... If that piece of text is in the um, modern Bible, where is it? And some of them aren't. <laughs> so some of them uh, are there's there were some psalms, if I remember right, that weren't in the Bible, but they were they were written down in a way that it looked like they were psalms, but you know the the adjudication of them was that they were just someone's poetry that happened to be in the same pot as the Bible, <laughs> as the biblical scroll. So I don't know. I but, suppose any more, any information, you know, that but, hasn't been translated 17 different times, yeah. you know, is better. They've had a number of, uh, I think it was the King James version was if uh, I'm going to, I'm going to show some of my ignorance here. I think that was the uh, Angelican church's version where they had back when they were saying the the king of england should be the head of the church not the pope because he's french well, they, or he's he's not french he's italian but he keeps siding with the french well the church of england is because what king wanted a divorce and the catholic church wouldn't allow it oh uh, yeah he so had they to had to kill he had to keep killing his wives yeah so. he had to he had to form his own church because the cat the pope said no no divorces i've got to be careful we've got some uh canadians including my co-host cold acid who uh who you haven't met but it's uh he is very strong on his his history in that regard so i i usually just step out and let him explain what happened to me (laughs) because they teach that in school we don't teach that in uh some of it you get in school but you don't know who's all the henry's and george's and uh who did what and who married who and who was beheaded no who had 20 wives and 21 of them (laughs) 21 concubines. Well, you know, once again, it's human nature. I'm sure the story doesn't change. You could go a couple hundred years in the future from that point and find the same story again. I mean, you know, human nature is always the same. We could get a 2000 year old Roman document and it'll have things you could find people bitching about their work, you know, and things like that. So what I, what I did get was some of the history of the U S and the colonial U S and things like, um, the old boundaries between New Hampshire and New York, which is where I grew up. And so it's, you know, it's uh, relevant to my education, at least not that <laughs> anyone who lived in uh, on the other side of the country probably didn't get this, but we had stories of the settlements um, where people would go to certain regions, which are now in New Hampshire and Vermont, and they'd have a land grant. It was from New York. And then they get a land grant from, uh, I think it was Massachusetts. And they get there and there'd be someone who was already there. And they had a land grant. And so you had (laughs) the governors of these different colonies issuing grants for the same land (laughs) to different people. And back, the purpose of the land grant, I don't know if this is widely known, but they, even back then, they were thinking about um, the need for a military and the need to um, essentially 
how important is it to to have grazing land for horses and livestock? It's not just so you can keep them for food and so you can do farming. It's also because that's a military asset. If you have to be able to move an army through, you need to have enough fields that are open that with grass planted in them that they can actually eat. <laughs> Otherwise, you have to carry the grass in as well as all the other stuff to keep your army. It, isn't fed. that isn't that kind of like the uh, Eisenhower freeway when they built the freeway system? Every so many miles had to be straight so you could land a plane on it in an emergency. And and the width of it was wide enough uh, for I think it was a single tank or the the minimum widths that they set up for it were uh, had to do with the tread widths on tanks mm-hmm. so that you could drive military, well, large good, military vehicles. Good rules to live by, I think, yeah. you know, because, you know, once again, human nature never changes and somebody always wants what you have, you know. And I, so the previous standards for roads, though, actually go back to the Romans. They were as wide as the uh, the wheelbase of uh, Roman chariots. <laughs> and so they just happened to be a size and they decided that was the size. And so they'd have the ruts and the road would be a certain width apart. <laughs> and as the Romans went over and they took over everywhere, they would make the roads a certain width, even though if you're just walking down the road, you don't need it to be that wide. But the Romans might want to drive a chariot down there one day. And so they they made it so that if if they were in charge of the governance of a place and they're making new roads, that's how wide they made them. And that stood for a very long time uh, it's it kind of sets the width of many many roads in the world, uh, though the, the, the history is lost. You know, it's now it's just written inside a standard somewhere. Oh, so, this is how wide our roads. Are. So in so in you know five hundred years, the width of the roads will be dictated by you know eighties nineteen eighties Chevy truck. You know, they're like <laughs> it's the the F two fifty. It's got to fit an F two fifty. Yeah, that's got to fit an F two fifty. And they're like, "What's an F two fifty? It'll probably be in the future, you know, F um two fifty um or something like that. You know, some kind of because you know everything's been lost. And what's an F um two fifty um? Oh, it's the ancient vehicle that they used to drive on the road. <laughs> I saw when I was in France, uh, they had a normal sized American pickup truck on the road. And oh, it doesn't work. Well. I did not realize how big those things were. But you, you don't notice because you're there for a while and you're only seeing small cars and you kind of lose that sense of scale that you have in the States where, you know, if I'm on the outside and I see a um, normal size, not like an F-350, you know, with uh, large wheel, ba- double wheels or anything like that. You, you don't need any of that to be larger than every other vehicle you know, on the if, road. If we, we were in France for, let's see, was this, what, March, April? March and April I spent in France. Yeah. And when we were in the French Riviera doing work, you know, um, down in the south, and there was a, parked on the side of the road, there was a 1980s Chevy Suburban. And, uh, and compared, uh, just to give you an idea, in France, a Cooper Mini would be a mid-sized car. I'm serious. There are smaller cars than a Cooper. A Cooper Mini is a mid-sized car. And given the fact that the roads are so narrow and there's people and buildings everywhere, th- you wouldn't want a Cooper Mini. It's too big. I mean, really, if you just want to park and run out and get something the way it's, it's arranged there. And um, you know, that's a mid. So imagine a Chevy Suburban from the 80s, you know, not a new one, an old one. You know, it's like, my God, it looks like a tank compared to what's on the road over there. But once again, you know, those road, the road we drove on to go from where our hotel was to our work site was, I think they said that road was 2,500 years old. Yeah. (laughs) Humans have been going on this part of the earth as a road for 2,500 years. Mm -hmm. And so that gives you an idea how wide it is. 
Now, did they have all the roundabouts? Yes, it, yes, it was all roundabouts. Yes, everything was a roundabout. Everything was a roundabout with people that just walk in the road. Twenty five hundred years ago. <laughs> no, <I'm>, it, really? <laughs> I mean, a, every, when we, I can't remember how many roundabouts we went through to get from the hotel to the job I, site. I think those are some trend. Those can't possibly be thousands of years old maybe not that one but the one that goes along the coast i, yeah. I think that one was the one that had been there since forever right i've, I've seen that stretch of road it's a uh, very scenic because what did like it what did the locals tell me we were we were in um what marcel what was it called i can't pronounce it and i don't want to butcher marseille it yeah marseille marseille and they said people have been living in that part of the earth for 2,500 or 2,800 years <laughs> yeah that's pretty long i mean it goes back to primitive man like you know bronze era stuff they found it's more than that you mean thousand years not hundred years you know thousands thousands yeah um million i don't know it's it's been a long time now here in the united states you know nothing's older than a couple hundred years (laughs) yeah you know (laughs) we get all proud uh going back to the new hampshire history we had a border dispute between massachusetts and new hampshire where the where does that southern border of new hampshire northern border of mass where is that line drawn where do you cross from one state to another there's a dispute over it that was actually um it was actually uh, solved by the king of england because they went back with the map and he drew a line that's the modern border so that's how the border was set (laughs) but the old stone markers are still there from the old uh the old uh definitions oh really so that was in a town i grew up in well, that's pretty uh, neat. An old stone marker from now, now. I don't think the it's it's a little nebulous if that's the original stone because things get picked up and left and all that. But uh, the, there is a marker that is stone that does mark the old position, and I'm sure the stone is that old too. Uh, <laughs> as stones go, they all they all seem to be pretty old. But uh, I don't know if someone had moved that old stone onto the old line <laughs> sometime <laughs> in the last hundred years instead of the last three hundred years. Oh boy. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Oh, interesting. You know, the history of things. But, um, you know, we were talking about um, earlier, you know, we mentioned human nature a little bit, you know, and um, I was watching Star Trek and I was just lamenting on how that life will never be like Star Trek because human nature never changes. You know what I mean? There's always greed and ambition and testosterone oh, in the terrible. world. There's always greed, ambition, and testosterone. So you always will have wars and fighting, and somebody always is going to want more than the other guy. And oh. But can I get laid on the holodeck? That's all I want to know. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have holodeck in the original series. And what is it? We were Oh, it's been 10 years. No, more than 10 years now that our Bluetooth headsets are smaller than Uhura's little communications <laughs> radio that she yes. had in her ears. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was it Nichelle, Nichelle Nichols? Nichelle Nichols. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think she, I, I got to see her before at a Comic-Con mm-hmm. maybe five, maybe seven years ago. So it all blurs together, but uh, I think she passed away. Yeah, just not, not too long ago, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a long time, you know, that's, that's a long time, man. You know, it was in rerun when I was a kid and I'm old. <laughs> I think my mom, uh, remembered watching some of the original broadcast. I remember talking about it a couple of times. There's a few clips on YouTube of the original, you know, like a, a off air recording of an original broadcast made at a TV station or something. And it's interesting to see oh. you know, how crude television was in the commercials for it. You need to see the commercials for star trek on it was nbc right star trek NBC. on nbc mm-hmm. those sorts of things are lost uh even for modern well, i i wouldn't say lost for the modern things I, I remember when battlestar galactica the remake uh 
the 2004 era series. Oh, that one. They had a couple commercials in there I thought were pretty good. And they, especially because they had, uh, there was a Canadian band, Our Lady Peace. And they had a, oh, one, yeah. of, one of their songs came on and they used it as the background for the commercial. And I, I remember I was a fan of the band. I knew the song and then it came on TV and I was, oh, this is kind of cool. This is the sh- the ad for the show I like. Uh, it's, I'm anticipating it. I want to watch it. And then it has a song that, uh, it, it wasn't one of my favorite songs, but I recognize it. It was a really cool thing. I'd like to have a copy of that, but there's a perception that all of this video is, oh, it's everything's on YouTube, but the truth is most things aren't. There's- oh, that's right. You know, since you mentioned that, speaking of the days of C-band satellites, I pulled a live concert off of Anik E1 KU band back in the day of Our Lady Peace. I got about a 40 minutes of a live concert that was being, bro- I think it was being broadcast to somebody's university that one of the band members went to. It was a private broadcast. I just was tuning around one night and I found a concert of Our Lady Peace. So I started rolling tape on it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it would have been 1995, maybe. Oh, geez, you don't still have it, do you? Yeah, I still have it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I oh, still shit. have it. Yeah, That's I'll have to. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to give it to you. It was, you know, some venue, and it was, you know, just because I would always, you know, scan the bands before <laughs> I went to sleep at night, look at all every transponder on every satellite, and then roll tape on whatever you know that you could find interesting. Now, this is I've I've heard some stories about this where you could get before the. Uh, the stations caught on to it. And maybe we need to take a step back. Maybe we, we started with TVRO. Oh, TVRO, yeah. We, well, maybe the we'll- alcohol is taking effect. I, I think it is. Well, just just to kind of clarify what the, the landscape of this looked like, we had um, television stations would broadcast up to the satellite and that would then repeat it mm-hmm. down to, mm-hmm. to local- well, it would repeat well, like, it down to like, everywhere. Like, but. like, like a football game. Okay, you had the you had the KU band uplink from the field that would go on to a KU band bird, and then go down to New York, and then New York would insert the local commercials and the commentary from the local color commentators. You know, whoever it was back in the day. Well, it was since it was all analog, you could tune in on the feed, the KU band feed directly from the field, and that was raw. So when they went to commercial, you'd hear them, okay, we're in commercial. And then you'd hear John Madden, you know, God damn it, we only got two minutes. Give me some food. I'm hungry as hell. You know, he'd be, and OJ Simpson was hilarious. OJ Simpson in the early 90s, as soon as they went to commercial, he'd start telling jokes. And you'd hear, camera three, camera three, you know, get on that girl with the yellow shirt with the big tits. And then camera three would pan over. <laughs> yeah, that's her. You know, and, and, you'd, and we'd sit there and watch this. I'll never forget my roommate at the time. Yeah, I had a uh, we had a small apartment with a balcony, and I couldn't put a C band dish on the balcony, but I could put a little three foot KU dish there. So you didn't get any of the regular programming that you would see on cable, but you got all of the backhaul feeds and all of these live feeds. And I remember we watched a live football game one time, and my roommate, who bitched endlessly about the dish being there, was like, "Oh, that's going to stay right there if we can get football on it," you know. Um. So you'd see all kinds of stuff like Bryant Gumble was one time at a remote location somewhere. And of course they go to commercial and Bryant Gumble puts his feet up on the desk, pulls a bloody Mary with the celery in it <laughs> out from behind the desk, starts drinking it. And he opens his paycheck. Hey, I got a raise, guys. You know, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and see, they didn't, I guess, you know, uh, they didn't really realize that people were tuning in on these um, because they always treated it as a private broadcast. Um, I had read somewhere that in the late seventies, you know, the Johnny Carson show tonight show was done, you know, in the evening, 5 PM in Los Angeles, and they would uplink it to New York, edit it in New York, and then broadcast it from New York. 
Well, people were tuning in on this and you had a 90 minute and it was all raw and you could hear the band playing during the commercial breaks. And I guess Carson found out about it and was really upset because people were hearing them make all the non political jokes and all the stuff during the breaks, which they thought was private. And then he complained and they started doing the editing in Los Angeles instead of uplinking it raw. And boy, finding videotapes of that, I know there's a few that exist, but that'd be something to see. You know, I guess they would tell some really racy jokes during the commercials. <laughs> yeah, racy back in the day, too. That's I like, mean, racy in the 1970s, you know, yeah. which which you'd probably get put in jail if you told it publicly today, you know. What do you like to listen to today uh, for uh, programming, like TV programming or video? What, TV? Pro- well, well, first of all, there's nothing on broadcast worth a shit anymore. Um I mean, there just isn't. I'm sorry. Broadcast television. I mean, really, I think that uh, the stuff I've been enjoying has been the South Korean dramas that you can find. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a pain because you're watching it all subtitled. But um, the political messages you don't get. You know what I mean? It's full political messages, but they're South Korean and you don't understand them. So you could actually watch it and enjoy the drama and enjoy the story and not be upset by any political messages. Right. It's because the programming's for someone else. It yes. misses you. Yes, yes. You you know, it goes over your head. You know, I guess corruption I guess South Korea pretty much operates like Youngstown as far as corruption and, and mob. Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown, Ohio, yeah. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio and um Boy, oh boy, you know, the stories that went on. Um, just to give you a little background, my grandfather owned a bowling alley in Youngstown, Ohio, and he opened it in 1950, and it closed in 1991. So pretty much everybody in my family grew up in the bowling alley helping grandpa with stuff because he always said that, you know, if he had to hire a contractor for every little plumbing or electrical issue, we would be out of business in 1951. So we fixed everything. HVAC, motors, everything, you know, electrical services, anything you could do to save money. And boy, you know, the, the, the stuff that went on, could you imagine, imagine a full bowling alley, leagues bowling, a full bowling alley on a Saturday night and a gentleman coming in the front door and a gentleman coming in the side door with a shotgun <laughs> and marching everybody up against down the bowling lanes, marching everybody, the whole bowling alley against the masking units all the way up against the machines and stealing everybody's watch and wallet and that happened in 1969 (laughs) and they did that and they left and you know and police came about a half hour later probably because they were in on it (laughs) but i guess that's how south korea operates i mean it's from the shows you watch i guess there's lots of corruption and you know payoffs and things like that and it just it just brings back memories of back home you know the police catch you and you know, you're going to go down for years, but if you pay the right person off, okay, have a nice day, get out of here, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of the, the traffic tickets disappearing because uh, your uncle knew someone. Oh, yeah, that, that I mean. Those are Chicago stories. I, I've no, heard that happened Chicago in stories. Youngstown, too. That happened in Youngstown. You knew someone, yeah, don't worry about it, you know. Yep. The, um, the uh, police chief, uh, Youngstown police chief, longtime police chief, was an alcoholic, and he used to always be at our bowling alley, and he was always smashed. <laughs> and I mean, I remember this stuff as a kid. You know, you don't think anything of it, but you look at it years later, and, and it's like, you know, the fella who always used to sit next to the desk that always had this giant wad of money, whose name was Leo. <laughs> and I just remember him as a kid, because you go up to him, you know, four or five years old, he'd give you a dollar. You know, sometimes he'd give you a silver dollar. Well, he was the mob guy that was doing the numbers. 
And you could look at pictures over the years, and there's Leo. You know, you see him in 1960, real young. And as the pictures get older, you see him gradually getting older, always at that one table next to the desk. And that's the that was the numbers guy, you mm-hmm. know, or the fella who used to come in and collect the money for the vending machines. I mean, this guy's right. The guy that used to come and collect the money from the vending machines was right out of the Godfather movie. I mean, I swear, leather or a pinstripe suit or something, you know, and this guy would come and my uncle would go in the office with him and no one was allowed to go in there with him, you know. (laughs) I've heard uh, the the one thing I... It sticks in my mind, and I I don't know much about Youngstown, but I, I've heard stories about Chicago. And what they said there was that back in the day, you could get a loan from the mob, and the interest rate was better than the bank. Mm-hmm. And there's a this this idea that oh, if you can't pay, they're going to break your legs, and that really didn't happen. It was really if you wanted, no, they a loan, just took over your business. You you had to go find the guy, so you had to know where where they were. You go talk to them and say, hey, I need a loan for this much. They want to know. Where you work, how much do you make, can you pay back? Show me the, some some evidence that you're able to pay back. They didn't just give you – they didn't give out the money to anyone. No, no, it wasn't – You know, Yeah, it wasn't – no, it, they actually ran it like a business. My, now, my mom has a bunch of stories. I have to get them over the holidays, and I can actually bring them to the show. Mm. The stories that my mom remembers. Oh, man, and there's a bunch of them. Like sometime, sometime in the 60s, there was some cash crunch at the business, and my grandfather had to get a loan from the mob. Mm-hmm. But – it was only for a month. But during that time, you gave the deed to the property to the mob, and you didn't get that back until you paid them off. And if you didn't pay them off, you became the employee, and they became the employer. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't like the movies. You know, they didn't well, break your legs. They just took your business over. Well, you know, if you look at the way that banks work these days, they try and do the same thing. <laughs> I'd actually feel safer with the mob. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard this sentiment before. The... the uh, you know, having your whole future determined by a credit score instead of someone who's actually interested in whether you can pay it back or not, or if you're an honest person, you're looking for, uh, you know, who, who's going to service the loan according to the terms versus someone who's just going to file for bankruptcy later, you know. And I, but, you know, dealing with the mob, I mean, the stories I heard, it was like, you know, well, you know, you can't make the payment. So you go to the guy and you tell him you can't make the payment, you know, and, and he's like, well, why didn't you come? The day after you couldn't make the payment and tell me, hey, Leo, take him in back and show him what it's all about. You know, they take him in the back, boom, boom, boom. And the guy comes out face swollen a little bit. And boy, he came back in an hour with the money. You know, I mean, and that's how they did things. It wasn't like I said, it wasn't like the movie where they shot you right away. But, you know, yep. you know, so I don't know. Just different. Once again, a different lifestyle, because Youngstown was a thing where you had big city wages in a medium sized town. You had wages, Chicago wages. You had New York wages in Youngstown and a small town. So there was a lot of money in the economy, a lot of money. What was the business of Youngstown? Steel. Steel. Everything was steel. Um, Everything was steel and the industries that supported steel. My grandfather, where he lived, he owned the bowling alley. The guy that lived next door owned a diesel mechanic shop. The guy down the street owned Youngstown rubber and hose that made all the hydraulic hoses for the uh, steel industry. The guy across the street owned a carbon steel tool shop, and he made all carbon steel machine tools for the steel industry. And, of course, after that evaporated in the late 70s, everybody went out of business except for my grandfather because he owned the bowling alley. (laughs) (laughs) The bowling alley can hang on. Yeah, the bowling alley can hang on. I mean, and once again, we were lucky because we were paid off by that time, and and we could, you know, struggle through the 70s. I mean, he told me the 70s were... 
were pretty bad. He was thinking about expanding in the 60s because business was so good. And I remember him telling me, you know, in the early 80s, boy, am I glad I never did that. I'd be dying now, you know, thank God, you know. But, oh, bowling, bowling. Uh, everyone needs to bowl. They, yeah. They've uh, they've had a bowling alley in the basement of the White House, if I remember right, that they restored lately. That's been there since forever. Yeah. Well, that was a big bo- joke. I remember they were saying, because I think they had Brunswick equipment. We always used to joke because Brunswick equipment was the Brunswick made good approaches and good lanes and AMF made good pin spotting machines. And that's what we had. We had AMF pin spotting machines and Brunswick lanes. Um, it's kind of like Tektronics and Agilent. Tektronics, <laughs> Tektronics and Agilent both made oscilloscopes and spectrum analyzers, but you always bought an Agilent spectrum analyzer and you always bought a Tektronics scope. Right, the Tektronics. But, but if you bought a Tektronics spectrum analyzer, it was all left-handed and it worked weird. And, yeah. and the same thing applied in bowling equipment. You know, AMF made great machines, simple, easy to work on. You could climb in there and do anything. It wouldn't kill you. A Brunswick machine, if you got caught in it, it would rip your arm off, you know. Now, I remember Agilent Spectrum Analyzers before the Field Fox came out. They, The portable versions were kind of crappy, at least the ones I played with. Oh, Agil- that I'm maybe I should say Hewlett-Packard. Hewlett-Packard. Yeah, maybe I should say Hewlett-Packard. The, I'm sure the, the, the bench models were, were okay, but, you know, the battery-powered handheld Spectrum Analyzer. And Ritsu had a... Had the, oh, the, the market, right? one, but Yeah, Inertia Everyone was the winner. Everyone had the site, was it Spectrum Master? They had a Spectrum Master, Site Master, and... The Antenna other. Analyzer or something. Yeah, was, yeah. The one that just did S11. Yeah, it didn't do much. Yeah. Well, the Field Fox came out, and I got to see the demo. Uh, I was working at a place where it was important enough that the new, I think it was Keysight at that point, they'd already changed uh, from Agilent to Keysight. Uh, went out to do their demos, and so they had the promotional version of the Field Fox trying to get all the engineers excited over it, and I got to see the <laughs> demo, and I thought it was kick-ass. The first one that I ever saw was amazing, and I've had one of those in my kit um, pretty much ever since, right up until here where we don't have one. <laughs> well, now you can get a $60 th- uh, uh, 3 gigahertz uh, portable spectrum analyzer that yeah. almost does – I think it was eighty eighty thousand dollars. You could get a fifty gigahertz analyzer uh, and a cal kit. Um, the the way they do these analyzers, if you get the one that only goes up to I think to twenty six and a half gigahertz, you can they have a quick cal. If you're sick of salt cows, you're sick of putting those short open loads. Oh, the on ones those. that switches them in automatically. Yeah, that box. That yeah. is pretty awesome. It works very well. But they don't have one for fifty gigahertz, so you oh. have to get a salt kit if you. They get had a problem. One, they had problems with those when they first came out. We had one for a while. We gave it back. We didn't like it. <sighs> I, I initially, it was fantastic. but but that was when they were first new. You know, we uh, um, we were having a ripple problem, and then we brought them in, and they're like, "Oh yeah, there was a you know, error, and we they fixed it." But I want to say the uh, the company decided that the cow kit doing it manually was the better way. <laughs> <laughs> I've I'm a fan of that uh, just because you it keeps you in the loop. And it keeps the technique alive. There's a lot of people who are poor at doing millimeter wave measurements because they don't have anyone teaching them how to do it. Well, I mean, why did everybody, you know, why am I an RF guy? Why did I become an RF guy? I'll tell you why. Because we live in Youngstown, Ohio, and they didn't have cartoons on in the 1970s. And the only station that had something on you could watch was 
WPGH Channel 53, and that was 70 miles away on Channel 53, way the hell up at 700 megahertz, and it had Ultraman on it. <laughs> Ultraman, I love the it. The original 1960s <laughs> live-action Japanese Ultraman. And so I didn't know, I was young enough, I didn't know what N, North, South, East, and West meant on the antenna rotator. So I would go outside and look at the antenna, because my uncle told me what the front of the antenna was, and I would just point it towards Pittsburgh, go in and turn the rotator, and go outside and wait till it pointed in the right direction, and run inside and stop it. And I remember my dad, just look at the indicator, won't you? You don't have to go outside. (laughs) Uh, What was was Ultraman? It was live, it was was typical live action like Godzilla, just like the Godzilla movies, you know, an actor in a rubber suit, you know, playing a giant. And, you know, it, it was a, how to put it, typical 1960s. It was a science team. Okay, but they were also, they would go out and stop problems that would happen, you know, like either a monster would come or a fire would start, mm-hmm. and one of the characters would turn into Ultraman. He would pull the beta capsule out from under his neck and hold it up and turn into Ultraman. And then, of course, you know, Ultraman has the big light on his chest that blinks and tells you you're running low on energy, of course, so the enemy can see it, too. You know, this big blinking light, you know, and if, if, if he doesn't go recharge before the light stops blinking, he's going to die, much like Iron Man. <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. Oh, I like, it was great. Ultraman. I like, I like hearing about some of those old things. I didn't watch uh, the, the two usual ones that I hear about are that, um, Speed Racer, and then maybe at the close third is... Uh, there was a show called Space Battleship Yamato, which was oh the the puppet live action puppets. No, that it was an anime, and it was uh, marketed in the U.S. by a different name. And I'm lo- Star Blazers, I think, is what it was called. Oh, Star with, with the ship Star Blazers with the Yamato. It, oh, it was Space Battleship. Yeah, it Yamato. was a Space Battleship. Yeah, our Star Blazers. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I saw a panel at a anime convention some time ago where it was just the history of the opening sequences of Space Battleship Yamato and including the one that they used that was adapted into Star Blazers and that series has been going on for so goddamn long <laughs> it's been made and remade over and over and over and all the panel was it was a discussion of the opening credit scene where they had the, the what would play every week Right when the program was beginning, you'd see the the sp- spaceship coming out of the ground, you know, break with the the debris breaking away, and it would fly off into space. And that was <laughs> yeah. you know, da 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 da, and have the, the title credits. <laughs> and they had that same sequence animated like seventeen different times from by different animators for different years for different times that they different versions of the show. And uh, it was, honestly, it was fascinating to see. The animation techniques change over the years because you started in the 60s, I think, and you worked your way up all the way to modern times where they actually had uh, computer generated. They would use a wireframe reference so that as the ship would move around that the uh, the dimensions didn't distort, you know. Oh, but, oh yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. But anyway. Star I, Blazers. Wow. Star Blazers. Yeah, that's it. Boy, that brings back some memories from grade school. Man, oh man. I think that was on on the weekend or something. But I uh, didn't watch that too much because the weekend had regular cartoons on the network stations. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. We got some Star Blazers. We got some other things. Uh, we we got some material to talk about next time we have you on. Yeah, I have to get, you know what? Uh, I'm going to be like, so I'm going to be home for the holidays. I am going to get a hold of my mom and get all the old stories from the bowling alley. All right. <laughs> we'll, we'll look forward to that. We'll do another. Uh, I think we should do another thing. 
Yeah, I think we can. Until next time, I've been Abel Kirby. I am Mark Christopher. Talk to you later.